by allowing, by making it possible for Pharaoh to maintain his studied rebellion, we get to find out who Pharaoh really is. And we see who the Lord is, that he's powerful enough to overcome a rebel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series, in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible, one by one, in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually, but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. For this series, I've been recruiting outside help from people who have spent a lot of time studying and who really know their way around particular books of the Bible. And today, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dorian Coover cox uh, Dr. Coover cox is the Acting Director of the PhD Studies Department and Professor of Old Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, which means that she's an expert in Biblical Hebrew. She also has a special interest in literary analysis of narratives and poetry, as well as in the book of Exodus, which is perfect because that's exactly what I want to talk with her about today. But before we get to that, Dr. Coover cox welcome to the podcast. And I wonder if you could start by giving us a little bit more information about yourself, background, family, things like that. Well, I am delighted to be part of this podcast series, and I want to let you know that I grew up in Western New York, and one of our great treats as kids was when we would get to go with our parents to the Canadian National Exposition in the olden days when it was fairly easy to cross the border between Niagara Falls New York and Niagara Falls, Canada. And there were many times when we would drive between my home in New York and my college in Wheaton, Illinois, and we'd take the, the northern route through Canada. So I, I feel very privileged and delighted to be part of this event. I came to know the Lord as a child. I cannot remember a time when I didn't know about Jesus and about the Bible. But there was a moment when I realized, oh, this is for me. Hmm. And I needed to trust Christ as my savior. It wasn't for anybody else that I was raising my hand and that I was praying. It was for me. Hmm. And uh, I've been so glad all these years to have started a life of faith early on, because I think if I had grown up without genuinely being a believer early in life, I would have pretended to be hmm. for a long time and then become probably an existentialist in my teen years and just decide, well, this is a pretty good way of living. It's prudential and so on. And I, I can suit myself in the process. So I came, I went to Wheaton College, ended up with a job as an editor in Cleveland, Ohio, and realized my job as an editor would be vastly enhanced if I knew some Greek and Hebrew. And coming to DTS was part of that. I eventually thought I would graduate and find another full-time job as an editor. But I found out in the process of taking classes here and working for the Old Testament department that I like helping people learn. So that's what I do now. And uh, I continue to, to edit, but I also work at helping people learn Hebrew and other things. So here I am. And oh, yes, I did a PhD here. And basically discovered that if you keep doing what they tell you to do, they keep making you graduate. And, <laughs> and I, my PhD work was in Old Testament and my dissertation in Exodus. So I have a great love for that book. And I'm just glad to have a chance to talk about it. So what would what should we start with, Josiah? That's a good segue. I'm supposed to be asking the questions, but that is a good question. And that is the question of the order. So I'm wondering, when we start with Exodus, and thank you so much for that overview and the introduction to yourself. When we come to this second book of the Bible, I'm wondering if you can situate us. Where do we find ourselves in the story of Scripture? What's the context of this book? And how does it relate to Genesis? Clearly, it does relate 
because at the end of Genesis, you realize, oh, we've got a book that started out with things being created and new life everywhere. And now we're burying people. People have died. There's all sorts of troubles that have come up. But in the process of those troubles, the Lord got involved in the life of Abraham and uh, eventually told him that his descendants would spend time in Egypt, but that they would eventually come back and would have the land that he'd been traveling through and living in his tents and a sojourner, he's called. And when Joseph was dying at the end of the book, he made his relatives promise that when the Lord would take them back to the land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that they would take his bones with them. So he was looking forward to this time. The book of Genesis ends and the book of Exodus picks up with a little bit of review of what's happened and points out, well, now Joseph has died and the Pharaoh who was in power doesn't have any recollection of Joseph or why the Israelites ever were part of the country. And that begins the book. Uh, it was fun to read about scroll sizes in the, in the ancient Near East. And I discovered an article that pointed out that the Pentateuch is, is not divided into five because you couldn't get it onto because it wouldn't fit onto fewer scrolls. You could fit it onto the normal scroll sizes and it would be less than five. So the, it's very clear the divisions are made and they're put on separate scrolls because they were separate documents. Mm. It wasn't forced upon anybody by the average scroll size. So that was interesting. And you can see the narrative seams between the books and that they're tied together in different ways. But Exodus, as I look at it, we tend to think about it as a book that describes how the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And that fits the name. But if that's really all it, there is to it, how come we have all this part about laws and how come we have all of this about building a tabernacle? Because to my way of thinking, you could put all of the tabernacle stuff into the book of Leviticus. And you could put the parts about manna, the giving of manna and battle with Amalek uh, and the water in the wilderness. That could, that could all be in the book of Numbers where wilderness wanderings and so on are taking right. place. And then the book would could end with, oh, you, well, maybe with this the um, visit of Jethro. Yeah, there's his name. <laughs> okay, Jethro in chapter 18. But no, all of these parts actually do fit together. Hmm. And one way to think about it is to think, it's not the only way to think about the outline of, of Exodus, but one way, one good way is to think of chapter 18 as a kind of hinge. So in chapter 18, Moses and the Israelites are at Mount Sinai and Jethro, his father-in-law, comes for a visit. And you can see at the beginning of the chapter that Moses goes out to meet his father-in-law and it says that he told his father-in-law about all that God had been doing for them, for the Israelites. So that, in a way, is summing up the first 17 chapters. Okay, he tells his father-in-law, this is what God has been doing. And then his father-in-law observes him helping the people by judging their and adjudicating their disputes. And he says, this can't keep up. You cannot do this all day, all night. You need help. Appoint judges. So in that you can see the need for an organization of the nation, and it points then toward what's coming. 
up until that point, they were just a mob moving out of Exodus, right? Or out of Egypt. I no, mean. They're, they're a group of people who, have, yeah. who are cohesive in the sense that they're, they're relatives of one another. They have customs and laws and, and ways of operating that, that have been in view, but they don't have a covenant with the Lord. And this whole covenant thing is huge. And that's going to be the focus of the future chapters. Okay. But if you if you look through, sometimes just, just read the book and watch for every time it says something about knowledge, particularly when the Lord says, I'm going to do X or Y so that so-and-so will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Hmm. And that shows up frequently and ties all of the parts together. The last time that's used, it's used in such a way that it is what the Israelites are going to do that's going to show who, show who the Lord is. Identify. His identity is going to be tied to what they do. And that's in the building of the tabernacle in their worship of him and in the meantime he's been explaining to them that they're his people i'm your god what does that mean and they understood in ways that i don't think we do so well what it meant to have a king hmm. and to be a people who belong to someone so the parts of the book actually all do work together because they're all one of the great unifying features is that all of the parts are connected to the task of displaying who the Lord is mm -hmm. for them to find out who is this God whose proper name is Yahweh. We see Lord with capital L and then cap lowercase O R D to represent Yahweh, the Hebrew name in our Bibles and there we are where we, we can see here he he declares who he is and in that same process we also see the theme of identities for moses and for the israelites and for pharaoh so as the lord's reputation is growing we're getting to know who he is we're also getting to know who moses is and he is becoming someone. His identity is being established. The identity of Israel is being established. And we're finding out, hmm, this is who Pharaoh really is. <laughs> so, and then that pattern is going to show up again throughout the whole Old Testament. Many patterns that are set up in the book of Exodus will be repeated elsewhere. You brought up the issue of identity and the Lord's identity being made known to Israel and then through Israel uh, with the tabernacle. This just came to me as I've been reading and thinking about this subject a little bit more as of late. In the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, one of the commandments is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And oftentimes we think, well, don't curse. You know, don't use the Lord's name in the wrong way because that is breaking that commandment. I've read recently that some scholars are saying that's actually more to do with heralding the name of the Lord, using the name of the Lord and representing the Lord rightly. Don't carry the name of the Lord, lift high the name of Yahweh in a vain way. I wonder if you could comment on that. Is there anything to that? Okay. By attaching himself to Israel, the Lord is putting himself in the position of having his reputation connected with what he's doing for Israel and how they are operating subsequently. And I, I think, I think you're, you're right in bringing up the idea that when the Lord is being spoken about, when his reputation is being put on the line, so to speak, it needs to be done in a way that is accurate, that doesn't misrepresent him. You can see Moses's understanding of the importance of God's reputation when he talks to the Lord about 
maintaining his relationship with Israel as a whole. When after the golden calf, the Lord proposes, well, let's wipe these out and we'll start over again with you. And Moses says, no, don't do that because people will misunderstand you. By this time, Moses has totally under, come to understand God's plan and is accepting it after all the chapters where he's saying, well, but what about this? And are you sure you really want me to do it? He's clearly now in 32 through 34, totally on board with what God had announced was his intention. And so by condescending to be involved with the people of Israel, God puts himself in the position of having people misunderstand him. And we are this, we're in the same situation. You and I have taken on the label Christ follower. We maintain that we're associated with him. Well, how should we then live if other people are going to have any chance of understanding who he is? So it is part of God's great kindness and grace to us that he puts up with us. And sometimes you can see, you can see it in the, when the prophets are talking to the Israelites sometimes, and the Lord is basically saying, I know I'm going to be maligned as a result of doing this, but I cannot put up with what you're doing anymore. And and he's, he's just going to take the hit to his reputation in order to deal properly with what they've been doing. And this gets into another topic as a whole, but you think there's got to be times that it seems the only thing keeping the Lord from protecting his name is the covenant he made with the people to, to preserve them, right? That he is good to his word and that he will maintain because otherwise I think of Hosea, I think of so many passages in the where the people of God have done everything possible to drag his name through the mud. And yet the Lord is patient, demonstrates his loving kindness, his faithfulness to his people. And certainly we see that through Exodus as well. And you brought up the golden calf there, which is an interesting segue to the next question I had, because God says, I'm going to wipe this out. Let's etch a sketch this. We'll start again. We'll start again with you, Moses. Right. And that brings me to the question I have about what Exodus might be perhaps most famous for, most well-known for, at least on the popular level of these 10 plagues that the Lord sends upon Egypt when his people are still in captivity there to we'll say, motivate Pharaoh to let them go, right? These 10 terrible plagues. I'm wondering if you can help us reconcile a good God and how we sometimes sing on Sunday mornings, a good, good father, you know, these these beautiful attributes of the Lord, reconcile that picture, which is true with these pictures of wrath or punishment or terribleness, right? Uh, Of the plagues. And ultimately when we look forward to the great and terrible day of the Lord, which will come, these two things clearly go together, his goodness and his wrath. How do we put those together? How do we understand those as we read through Exodus? Well, to ask such a question is certainly fair. And you can read Romans and watch Paul bring up the matter That's a good point. too. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's not wrong to ask at all. I have noticed that throughout the whole Old Testament, throughout the whole New Testament, people who know the Lord are convinced of his goodness. And so as a matter of principle, it seems the right thing to do to say, okay, if I see something that makes God look bad, I need to stop and wait till I get more information because I'm going to find out eventually that no, actually he's acting redemptively And he is good, even in this thing that looks that might have made him look bad, like he was being unfair or unkind or, you know, unjust something along those lines. I also see frequently and even when, you know, when Moses is is appointing judges, when Jehoshaphat later, much later is appointing judges, they stress that the Lord does not take a bribe. He's always acting justly. And that's what he demands of human judges. And so there's frequent referrals to God's goodness. So I come back to Exodus and think, all right, how does this work out here? And in the process of reading carefully and thinking about what's going on, 
it becomes plain that for starters, when Moses comes to talk to Pharaoh and says that the Israelites would like to go out into the wilderness and worship, have three days off from their slave labor and go out and worship Yahweh, Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? that I should listen to his voice. I don't know him and I'm not going to. So he was not saying that he did not know or that he needed information. He was saying, I don't care who he is. Right. Because the way that Moses comes to talk to him is the way a messenger would come from a superior to an underling. At the time of the Exodus, the rulers of Egypt considered themselves the only real kings in the world. There were, at the time, five great kings who would write to each other in those terms. They, they recognized each other as being important kings with little kings that they ru ruled over. And they would refer to each other as brother and so on. If my brother will say this or if my brother would do this. And Egypt went along with all of that. But back home, they did not believe, the Pharaoh did not believe that any of the rest of them were kings. They were chiefs. And he saw himself as the only king. So here comes Moses with instructions from headquarters, <laughs> from his superior. So everyone in the room now knows that the issue on the table is not the main thing. The issue on the table is whether Pharaoh will recognize God's sovereignty. So it's a battle over who's the top dog ultimately. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So here's Pharaoh. And sometimes people think, well, isn't it bad that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, no, actually, ultimately it becomes apparent, at least to me, that what what God is doing is giving Pharaoh the strength to persevere in his rebellion. And he is not giving him the opportunity to pretend to go along right. and make it look like, oh yeah, sure, sure. I'm the magnanimous king. I'll let you go. Mm -hmm. That would not suit Pharaoh. And it is not an option that's on the table. Is it safe to say that, that God is strengthening the conviction that already exists in Pharaoh's heart? He's not forcing, yeah, he's not forcing him to do something he didn't want to do. Right. He was already a confirmed rebel right. who right. has been attacking people by killing their babies. Mm -hmm. He wants to wipe out these people by getting rid of all the boy babies. This is antithetical to creation, That's to funny. God's care for, for people in general. So what goes on? Well, it turns out that different words are used to describe hardening. In English, they always, mostly all get translated hardened. But one of them has to do with something being inoperative. Inoperative because it's so heavy, it won't move. So a person who spoke ancient Hebrew could talk about inability to hear as having an ear that's heavy. Moses talks about, I can't speak well. He's, he's talking about having a heavy tongue. It doesn't work properly. Meanwhile, so inoperative, his heart becomes inoperative, but it, it's inoperative because of heaviness. It won't move properly. Okay, so then it helps to know that when an Egyptian died, part of the ritual, a pharaoh would die, anyone who is important enough to be made into a mummy, <laughs> would they would take the heart and put it into a jar. And part of the iconography of, the, of Egypt was that it showed that after death, a person's heart would be put on a balance scale. The heart on one side would be in a jar 
And on the other side would be wisdom, a representative of wisdom who is pictured as a feather. So a feather is very light. To have a heavy heart is bad in the afterlife judgment. And the Egyptians were so concerned about this that one of the things that they would do would be to have a heart-shaped scarab made of stone. This, in, in other words, a hard heart in a different way, a heart made out of stone. And it was because they wanted that stone heart to testify to their innocence. They were concerned that their flesh, their heart of made out of flesh, might tell the truth about them. So there's all kinds of things going on here that show, uh-oh, Pharaoh with his hard heart, hard in the sense of impervious, and then hard in the sense of heavy and inoperative. Oh my, this is not good. This is not good even by his own standards. Meanwhile, we can read what was considered to be advantageous in an Egyptian court. And an, an Egyptian courtier should be impervious to any kind of dismay or trouble. If something bad happens, he should be kind of like Spock in, in Star Trek. No emotion. He just can handle anything that happens. He doesn't lose his temper. He, he's unflappable. Well, that's what's considered ideal around the Egyptian court. But Pharaoh in, the, in this whole process is shown to, to lose his temper, to change his mind, to renege on his promises. Oh, he's supposed to be in control of the Nile and he's not able to do that. So in all kinds of ways, these plagues are showing that Pharaoh is not living up to the ideals even of his own culture, hmm. let alone the Lord's idea of what's right and wrong and how people ought to treat one another. So it ends up being a little bit like the book of Exodus in this description of the plagues ends up fitting very well into what Paul talks about in Romans when he says, you know, the Jews have a law, the law of God, and they don't live up to it. Meanwhile, the, the Gentiles all have a law, ideas of right and wrong, and they don't live up to it either. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we're seeing, yes, if anybody's ever going to be saved, it will be because God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and one who relents concerning calamity, <laughs> as Jonah points out, and as is described in Exodus 34. So, by allowing, by making it possible for Pharaoh to maintain his studied rebellion, we get to find out who Pharaoh really is. And we see who the Lord is, that he's powerful enough to overcome a rebel and that he can protect his people and that they have reason to say, yeah, if you're going to be our king, we, this will be good. We should be your people. And then how does he describe what they should do? Well, he describes it in terms of being holy because he's holy. Be devoted to me yeah. because I'm devoted to you. I really like how you described it really is a, a battle of gods, so to speak, a battle for sovereignty, a battle for first place. Mm -hmm. And Yahweh enters Pharaoh's home court advantage, plays by his rules, and still makes it very clear that he is number one and will not be trifled with. I yeah. love that picture. And I loved your opening caveat as well. When you come to a text that seems to paint God in a questionable light, especially in our modern sensibilities, we're so sensitive. And we read things and we say, oh, that's not the God I picture. That's not the God I like to think I'm worshiping. I love how you encourage us to step back, give him some time. Almost give him the benefit of the doubt that he deserves because he's the holy God. He yes. will vindicate himself and our small minds don't need to necessarily catch up to, to that, to, to make that so. We know this if we have healthy relationships, just human relationships. Because hmm. if you think about it, what happens if you institute 
a hermeneutic of suspicion in your home. Mm -hmm. If every time your wife says something, you think she has some ulterior motive. She's not being good to me. She's being unkind. She's being manipulative. She's got an ulterior motive. How long are, are you going to enjoy one another's company? That's not, it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. If you have someone who has in any way shown himself or herself to be dependable, you say, well, yeah, I know when I'm dealing with human beings, I know that sometimes people mess up and there could be a problem here, but I don't think so. If I stop to be generous at the moment, as opposed to suspicious. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I might drive home with a trunk full of groceries and I see my husband Chuck's big red pickup truck in the driveway, right where I need to park. I wasn't expecting him. He wasn't supposed to be home now. Did he park there because he wanted me to make unloading groceries a pain for me? No, he didn't. He just wanted a nap, the poor man, and, and didn't know I was coming home with groceries. But if, if I started thinking badly of him, it is not going to go well. That's so good. And you talk about the hermeneutic of suspicion that we can definitely use in our earthly relationships, and we need to be cautious about using it with God. But Exodus, as you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation, is coming directly out of Genesis. And what is the hermeneutic we're given in Genesis about this God? In the beginning, God created, created. It was good. It was good. It was good. And we sinned against him. So if the Bible itself gives us the hermeneutic through which we can look or the lens through which we can look at God, two books in the Bible, we've been given a pretty good view of who God is. Anything else, that hermeneutic of suspicion, it leaves us um, in some troubling waters. Yeah. Meanwhile, what one of my favorite verses is Psalm 118.1, where it says, Give thanks to the Lord because he's good. His loyal love endures forever. Ah, so you can see all the way through people are picking up on this and they have come to realize the fact that God is patient and kind and compassionate means that he's taking his time to deal with evil. Mm. And we all know when we stop to think about it, we need him to be able to deal with evil because there's some really bad things that are going on. And Peter talks about it. He, he takes it up. Some of you think that nothing has changed since the creation of the world. I just want you to know God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is patient toward you. Oh, okay. He's going to deal with evil cosmically and even in our own lives. And he's promised that when he's finished with our personal lives and when he's finished renovating the, the world and bringing us to the end of the book of Revelation, we will not be disappointed. Mm-hmm. And you can, when you finished reading Exodus and you go and read the last couple chapters of Revelation, you hear that language again mm-hmm. about the tabernacle of God is among men. This is an opportunity for us to get to know him in all the ways that he intended in creation. That's great. Well, time is flying. I heard a few more questions for you that I want to make sure I get uh, your responses to. And you mentioned this one a little bit already in one of your introductory answers. But, you know, Exodus as a whole, it has many well-known amazing stories in this book. It really is an action-packed book of the Bible. I think of the call and preparation of Moses, the burning bush, the parting of the sea, manna from heaven, water from a rock, Moses on Sinai, the Ten Commandments, uh, the giving of the law and the golden calf. And we've mentioned a few of those already. But you also mentioned that there are these chunks of legalese I think of chapters 20 through 23, um, there are chunks that talk about the building of the tabernacle with all this detail and right worship of Yahweh verses 25 through 31. As people today living in the church age, which you and I are far removed from that time and, and what they were experiencing, 
how do those sections have applicability for us? How can we read through those and say, no, all scripture is God breathed and useful. How are those sections that seem less action packed in the midst of this sea of activity? How can those be applicable to us today? Boy, I don't know that I have the perfect answer to that. (laughs) But what I can say is that the parts that to us seem particularly the parts having to do with building the tabernacle. You you get all this instruction about how to do it, and then it's virtually word for word the same that he did it. All right? And you think, how come we need so much space? God created the world in less space than this tabernacle is discussed. So why so much space is given to this? Well, if you've ever built anything... (laughs) You know that the people who are building really care about the plans. So that in and of itself is kind of an indication that this building, this tabernacle would be something that was special and that later people, I mean, people of that era would read it and would see, yeah, I I get it. And they knew. I, I am confident that the early readers knew exactly what kind of linen was going into each part. Is it applique? Is it embroidery? What, what, what kind of linen is it? And many details that, that we aren't so familiar with, but they would read it and they would realize, and how were these people who were slaves able to build this beautiful thing, this thing with so much gold and with jewels in it and with fine linen and leather of various sorts. Why were they able to do that? They were able to do that because God had provided all of the materials. He had provided all of the materials in a way that is, I think, at least as miraculous as the plagues. Mm. I mean, think about it. How likely is it how common is it that people who are considered unimportant in the society have slave status would go to their neighbors and say hey would you give me some really fine fabric and gold and silver and precious stones because we're going to leave and take it with us i mean who does that Nobody talks about that as a miracle, but I think it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it is at least as much of a, as a, a miracle as the crossing of the Red Sea <laughs> and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Well, God has an in to hearts. Pharaoh's not operating all on his own. The Lord can touch his heart. The Lord could touch the hearts of the neighbors of the Israelites so that they would have the material. They're living in the Sinai where there's nothing. They they might be able to trade for a little bit of stuff coming and going. Traders come by, that's possible, but they didn't have to. They had brought with them the things that were needed. In that era, kings would go and just steal stuff from other people. And what the, what they do, they would bring it to where where their capital was. And what happened? The imagery of Exodus is that the Lord says, "I'm going to dwell among you, and you're going to enjoy good things and fellowship with me, and I'm going to provide everything that's needed for the building itself, and everything that you need to have sacrifices to offer. What sacrifices are you going to offer? Oh, you're going to offer the first fruits of your crops. And how are you going to have crops? Oh, I'm going to make it rain." so that you don't have to carry water from the Nile or build canals in order to get water. Oh, and yeah, and there's gonna be enough grass for your sheep and your goats to have plenty of, and birds, and they'll they'll just be all everything that you will need to fulfill the sacrifices that I think will remind you of what I've done for you and of who you are, and and give you a chance to celebrate with one another and have and have parties when you offer thanksgiving and will it'll take care of the support of the priests mm-hmm. and the levites and they'll be able to help you worship and this is all going to be good for the nation as a whole 
And here's how to build it while you're traveling. You're going to have a portable tent. And it has lots of things about it that would that everyone in the ancient Near East would recognize. Oh, yeah, we can. This is a place of worship. Everybody can get that. He didn't ask them to build a skyscraper like you could see in Toronto. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't have meant anything to them. But every kind of building that we see nowadays, we look at it and say, okay, I think I know that. Oh, yeah. All right. That's an apartment building. I can see by the shape of the of the windows. That's an apartment building. I look somewhere else. Oh, that's an office building. Oh, that's a private home. This is a place of worship. Oh, okay. We get that. He's speaking to them in a language that they understand. They're, they're going to be interested in these plans. There's something, too, about the... He gives them the law and there is something about he's calling out this people to be his representatives on earth. He's going to make himself known to them. And these laws really hem them in from the nations around them, right? Make them pretty distinct, don't they? As they follow these laws that they will be different. In some ways, in some ways, in other ways, they are pretty normal laws. Hmm. Where are they different? They are different in the way, in ways that head toward greater respect for human life, Mm -hmm. greater clarity about justice and injustice, greater opportunities for everyone. So for example, I love the, the laws that have to do with the year of Jubilee, because what is that doing? It's giving everyone a way to make a living. It's not providing them with a living, but it's saying, hey, the means for making a living will be accessible from generation to generation. Would they need to make new laws? Yes. All of the, and the ancient laws, everybody understood from what I can tell that laws in the ancient Near East were not, and certainly the laws in the Old Testament are not, are not exhaustive. They're exemplary. So they give examples. If thus and such happens, then do this. Oh, well, then if something similar, that gives you an idea of what the penalty should be, of how to, what is required in the way of testimony and so on. But they would they would right away have to make new laws. And so you can see, oh yeah, when they get to the land, there'll be some things that have to change. And they would have, they would have the examples that are inscripturated to show them, okay, here's what we need to do. So the principles involved are principles of justice and moving the the nation forward by comparison to what was around them and preserving security for people. They, I mean, they were living in a time when you couldn't just dial 911 and get a fire truck or police or, or an army. They've got watchtowers to see, oh, is anybody coming? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, and they have, they build some walls around the city so they can get into them in time to, to put up a defense. And there are many things that were different. And they, so the basis for any kind of rules for war that we have now are, are found in the rules for war in scripture where the Lord will tell them, look, you can't just cut down all the fruit trees to build your siege engines. No, you can't do that. You can't, don't touch the fruit trees. And how do you treat your captives? There there are going to be laws for that. Hmm. By comparison to the Assyrians, this was a huge step forward. Mm -hmm. So all along, he's providing them with laws that grow out of his character mm-hmm. and his desire to help people mm-hmm. to preserve life and to, to give people an opportunity to say, yeah. Hey, this is a better way to live. We want to know your God. Yeah. Again, you see Yahweh being reflected through his people, right? Mm-hmm. Now zooming back out to catch a glimpse of the book as a whole, we see the excess of the beginning, the people groaning under the oppression in Egypt. And then at the end in chapter 40, the glory of the Lord comes and this just a beautiful trajectory of this book and there is this motif this exodus motif right that if you read theologians they talk about it going through all of scripture it's not only relegated to the book of exodus this idea of god bringing his people out of bondage toward this glory near the end i'm wondering if you can just quickly talk about how that weaves its way through the rest of scripture 
Okay, it shows up on every, yeah, I, I want to say every page, that would be an exaggeration. <laughs> but if you start, you if you read the book of Exodus, and then just say, okay, I'm going to watch for Exodus stuff later on, you will see, I started, oh, well, for Samuel 6, that when the ark has stolen, they're already talking about, well, don't harden your hearts the way Pharaoh did. Wow. And then you could go to Psalm 105, 106, and get a uh, summary of Israel's history that those that kind of thing shows up here and there throughout scripture so that oh yeah there's Peter and Stephen and Paul talking about what has God done for Israel you have the book of Hebrews famously is involved in thinking back through through the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and so on and what does it mean for Christ to be our high priest Oh my. So this is just huge in understanding the New Testament. Most of Paul's epistles are set up with a, a structure similar to Exodus. He might not be thinking about the book of Exodus, but what does he do in most of the epistles? He starts by talking about what has God done for you in Christ? How has he rescued you? Now, how should you live? It's the same thing that's going on in Exodus. And then there's Oh, so many references to it. You get the Lord Jesus being shown to be the one who gives manna, provides bread and water and, and light, the glory of the Lord. And you get discussions in John about how the, the Pharisees preferred the glory of men over the glory of God. <laughs> Jesus is, if you're going to recognize Jesus for who he is, you're going to be thinking, oh, yes, he's doing what God has done in the past and better, bigger. So Matthew is concerned about showing who Jesus is and says about his parents bringing Jesus back from Egypt after Pharaoh is dead. And he quotes, out of Egypt have I called my son. Mm -hmm. And how well, is that a fulfillment? Well, he saw a pattern. He said, and he's saying, well, look, has God ever brought a son out of Egypt? Well, yes, he has. We know he did because he called Israel is my son. You know, mm -hmm. excuse me. How are you supposed to treat the son of the great king? So has God ever brought someone out, a son out of Egypt? Yes, he has. Well, this is the ultimate and prime example of a son brought out of Egypt. To, who has been already introduced as savior. Wow. Yeah. He's going to save his people from their sins. That's great. So he's going to fulfill, he's going to do and fulfill all of the things that Israel failed in order to be the Messiah that they need, the anointed one who will rescue them and rescue us. Yeah. So really the more you understand the book of Exodus, the more beautiful the New Testament New Testament can become, right? Oh yeah, and the prophets saw the return from from exile as a second Exodus. They use that language again. You will not run out of Exodus motifs once you start looking for them. <laughs> I can tell you like this book. I do like this book. I do. I, want, I wonder if you can summarize it then as we close. What would you say is the main thrust of the Book of Exodus? So this might be difficult, but why would God preserve this book? And you've just hinted at a whole lot of things. It underpins really the story of redemption in many ways. But if you had to boil it down to one statement, why is this book in the canon? I don't know that I would do it every way, this way every time. I probably should have the perfect, well-studied statement. But I would say that one thing, major takeaway from the book of Exodus is that it is important to know the Lord. Hmm. And if I, if I come to know the Lord, I will come to know people and myself. He will give me an identity just as he has others throughout history. And when I see Israel going through hard times, he takes them to a place where they are frightened. They look up and they see that the whole Egyptian army in chariots coming after them. That's like seeing a tank coming, tanks coming. 
and they they have nowhere to go. He takes them to a place where there's not enough to eat and not enough water and where they're being attacked by, by others so that they would know that he could take care of them. And I remember one of my teachers here saying, we see from this that it is more important to know God than to have an easy life. He took them to places that were difficult so that they would have the opportunity to know him better, to know that he could take care of them and that if things were bad, and even if they had to die, they could trust him. And I remember that was one of the things that I thought about as a child, not knowing what was going on around me in some cases and thinking, well, what if, what if, what if we don't have enough to eat? And I began to realize, oh, if we don't have enough to eat, it must be because the Lord knows that we're going to die and we don't really need it. I should trust him. I should trust him. Even if I have a difficult life, even if I have a difficult life, he's there, he's present, he cares, whatever it is. And he says to his people, I'm not done with you. And Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So Old Testament, New Testament, you see the Lord being himself. And that's a very good thing. So in the book of Exodus, we get to know who the Lord is. And that is important. <laughs> that is a great way to wrap up our conversation and an important reminder for us today. We need to know the Lord and he's there. He loves us. He's for us. He is providential all the time. And we need to trust him. That's a great reminder. Thank you so much, Dr. Cooper Cox, for spending the time with us. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> it's been fun. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.